0: Welcome everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And it is wonderful to have with us this week, Rabbi Samuel Klein, who is Director of Jewish Engagement for the Jewish Federation of Greater Seattle. He holds master's degrees in theology from the University of Cambridge and a history of art master's degree from UCL in London. He is a lecturer and writer on religion and the art. And has taught Jewish thought and philosophy in a whole variety of community settings, and is also author of a wonderful series on the book of Genesis entitled "Unstitched and Rewoven: Reflections on the Weekly Parasha." And as people will know from your last podcast with us, Rabbi Samuel is also my closest friend. That is great to have you back.
1: Simon, it's fantastic to be back again. And I would be remiss if I didn't absolutely underscore just how close we are. We are best friends, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that was the phrase you used last time. Has things absolutely. changed like, since last time?
0: A- absolutely. They certainly have not. I'm not sure last time I got a reciprocation. So.
1: Didn't You didn't. You didn't, Simon. I'm here to address that issue. Good. For any for anyone listening.
0: Good to know that is corrected for the record in this year's series. So we look forward to exploring Vayetse together and the Jacob that we encounter at the opening of the Shah is forthright, direct and therefore really a significant contrast to his former hesitant self. And I wonder why you see that to be the case.
1: Let's start with Yaakov with Jacob. Actually in the scene where he comes across that barren mountainscape at night, when in the parasha it details how he alights upon this place. It's not described what this place actually is, it is ambiguous. And Sham Kiva Hashemesh, and he sets his encampment there because the sun is setting. And of course, there is that that famous and powerful and even moving scene of Dream Lad, where the ladder stretches from earth to heaven and back again with angels ascending and descending. And in that moment, the Mepharashim say, Yaakov undergoes a transformational experience because prior to this, he has been fleeing from, he's been fleeing from threat, the threat of imminent death, should his brother Esau catch up with him. And after this, he is moving towards, there is a future and he has a promise of that future which he is born aloft by. The verse says, actually, that after this moment, when he moves forward, Jacob lifts his feet and Rashi famously says, Libo nasa et raglov. He is born aloft by a new orientation, uh, a new focus. His heart his, is singing with this promise. So we find Jacob a changed man out of this, and that is how we're going to find him as he approaches the well at Haran.
0: Wonderful, thank you for scene setting. And this whole episode really is about different scenes and the importance of them perhaps. And we then of course come to really, I think, one of the most moving encounters in the whole of the Bible, Jacob's first glimpse of Rachel. Could you maybe share those wonderful alliterative words and what they evoke for you
1: so the verse speaks for itself let's read it let's read it together here it is 29 verse 10 and it was when jacob saw rachel the daughter of laban his mother's brother Lavan and the flock of laban his mother's brother Va'yegash Yaakov and Jacob drew near, va'yagelat even, and he removed, he rolled the stone, may alpiyah er, from upon the mouth of the well, va'yashk et son Lavan and gave the flock of his brother Laban to drink, va'yishak Yaakov leRachel, and Jacob kissed Rachel, et and he raised up his voice and he wept. It's very difficult to move over the alliterative qualities of these verses. You have by Yashk et Son la he he gave to drink, he quenched their thirst, the flock, and then he kissed Rachel. And there is a resonance there in both those words of something being quenched, the thirst of the sheep, and then also in his kiss with Rachel, which by the way is the only, is the only moment in which a person, a man, kisses a woman who is not his wife his or his daughter, in the whole of the Torah, as it happens. And this is important, because the Mefarshim, especially Rashi, among others, immediately jump on this and ask how it was even possible. Were it not for the verse to share this, we would never have imagined that Yaakov could do such a thing. And this is a moment when Rabbi, I'm giving him a, a rabbinate here. Or, Robert Alter mentions in his book, which is *The Art of Biblical Narrative*, just how powerful this whir of motion is around Rachel. So Jacob is almost enacting the same type scene that Rivka, Rebecca, had at the well. There are eleven words that Alter notices around Rebecca at the well when she gives the camel camels of water to drink. All these active verbs, and similarly here. Yaakov is taking initiative, and he is drawing himself closer to Rachel through this activity. Rachel, on the other hand, her name means a "you" in, in, in Hebrew, is almost passive, receiving and bearing witness to this word of activity from Yaakov. So in a sense, we have here Jacob, who is overcome with emotion, and Rachel, who we don't really know what's going on with her when she encounters this man and all of this activity. So this is something definitely worthwhile exploring further.
0: I was going to say the analogy with Rebecca is very apt and it certainly seems that Rebecca's, yeah, in relation to Eliezer, there's a marked difference to how Rachel responds. Is it perhaps that the obvious well of emotion that the moment evokes for Jacob is anathema to Rachel at least at that point.
1: So it's important to notice what Jacob is doing here. Jacob in a way is creating a template for the future. This is how the rabbis understand it of That the way in which the Avot, the ancestors, behave, this is something which powerfully communicates content for future generations. And in a sense, when Jacob rolls the stone, he is rolling the stone now, both now and into eternity. This stone, the stone which has been heavy around his neck, is a stone which has been accompanying him all this time. It is the weight of his promise. It is what Milan Kundera calls the heavier the burden, the closer our lives come to earth, the more real and truthful they become. It is his dream stone and his lodestone. In other words, this is Ha'even. This is the actual stone, which he will continually roll back and forth over the mouth of the proverbial well. He finds his life continually blocked by exigencies which are not of his making. One example would be by Yeshev Yaafkov Beeretz Eretz Kanaan, when finally Jacob comes to sojourn in the land of his ancestors in the land of Canaan after the whole story of Shechem, then immediately what happens afterwards, says Rashi, Miyad Kafatz Yosef. Immediately the vertigo, the, the, the vertigous experience of Joseph befalls him, the Rogez, the angst, the anxiety. In other words, Jacob is continually beset by these obstacles, these avanim these blocks in the road that he needs to clear away. And this is just one of them. How is he to create um, the shift they the 12 tribes? How is he to begin building this family when he is literally bereft of just about everything? And that is what this type scene is doing. It's contrasting Rachel, who is coming from Laban's house, full with flock, with uh, resources. It is a bucolic scene. And here is this fugitive who's coming in dusty from the desert with literally absent a penny. And it's the meeting in that moment of Jacob realizing that this is how he's going to have to do things. He's going to have to start somewhere. And that is why he weeps. Um, He weeps in part because he realizes that in the future, Rachel is going to be taken from him. That is the Midrash, that he weeps that not only is Rachel going to be taken from him, but that the temple is going to collapse and that many calamities will fall upon the children of Israel. And yet, Es Mussain, it has to be so. He has to start here. So there's a bittersweet moment here of him meeting Rachel and recognizing how difficult the future is going to be.
0: Let's then really reflect on that initial moment, that first encounter. And in your wonderful essay on Zayetse, you liken this scene to a particular episode of the live performance of Marina Abramovic at the Museum of Modern Art in New York from 2010. Could you share the details of that performance and how you come to draw that analogy between Jacob and Rachel?
1: Sure, firstly, I've been following the work of Marina Abramovic for years. And sadly was not present at that performance myself, and uh, which is reg- regrettable because I would have loved to have been, but I think it is one of her most poignant pieces the artist is present, which as he said was at the Museum of Modern Art in New York in two thousand and ten, and essentially the piece of work was marina sitting on a stool or a chair actually behind a table square small square wooden table and members of the public were invited to line up to queue up and to sit opposite Marina for a period of time, undisclosed period of time, and meet her gaze. And that was the piece. And then when they were finished, they would nod to her, get up and move on. And the next person would come and sit. And this piece of performance art, which went on for a week, was 730 hours of Marina Abramovic sitting was really, as the curator of this piece, Klaus Biesenbach, said, was working with time as the medium. So the piece of performance art, the material with which Marina was working, was actually slowing time down, such that we notice deeply those inflections, those emotions that cross our faces in ways which we don't normally do. And I find it very apposite and very connected to this week's parasha and also this moment at the scene, the, the type scene of the well, because of how the narrative slows things down all the way to noticing Rachel and Jacob in that moment over the well When everything else seems to fade away into the background, the shepherds and the passers-by and the the communal, the activity around the communal, all seems to fade into the background. And we have here the meeting of two presences, Rachel and Jacob. And for me, there is something very connected about the witnessing one with the other at that moment in their life and that moment in time, and also how Marina works with that quality and that medium Through her piece, which I'm happy to go into in greater detail.
0: So it would be great, maybe, to talk about the important encounter that she has. One of the key or the key gaze during during her during her shaping.
1: Yeah. So there's a moment, and it's a YouTube, the YouTube clip that had millions of views and went viral afterwards. Which was on the opening night. She's sitting there. In in the vestibule, and everyone's lining up. And then out of the audience, out of the line, there comes a gentleman. He's wearing a dark blazer with red lapels. And he walks up and she's collecting her thoughts, her gaze is downward, and he sits at the table, stretches his legs, makes a few movements, and then their gaze meet. And the moment is you can watch it on YouTube, it's a three-minute clip. You see something unfold there that's an ocean. It's an ocean of experience in a gaze. And the question, of course, is who is this person where Marina suddenly starts tearing up. She has had a rule of no contact, but within a minute and a bit, she's reaching across the table to hold his hands. Who is this person and why is he so important? And it's Ule, who was her collaborator for many years, her artistic collaborator, they had a relationship. They found out they were born on the same day as it happens. And they travel the world doing various, very challenging and controversial works of performance art. In fact, it's fair to say that they are founders of the field of performance art. This is a conversation that has been discussed much by curators and by art historians, but Marina certainly and Ulay were among the first to create this art form. And he and she have not seen each other, apparently, since they last parted ways 22 years ago. 22 years previously, on the Great Wall of China, when they were creating a work called The Lovers, which was about them walking from two ends of the Great Wall of China to meet in the middle, where they would be married. Of course, the conceit is they were never going to get married because they broke up a year beforehand. That is a much longer story. But essentially, Rather than say that they weren't going to do this piece of art performance art together, having spent seven years planning with the Chinese authorities and with everything else, they went through with it. And it was a very poignant and, to use a a, a word from before, bittersweet moment of Marina and Ulei meeting up where she realizes that he and she are no longer a pair. And yet this embrace that they had at the moment was full of everything that came before and she can no longer take it, and he's moved on, and he's in another relationship, and they split, and she is bereft, and they, they don't speak for years afterwards. And that was the first moment that they supposedly saw each other. Just a footnote, it seems clear from a, a film, The Artist is Present, that one can watch on online, that they actually did meet each other at least a couple of times prior. You can see in the film that he is visiting her apartment in New York prior to the show, and so even although it is very clear that they didn't meet for years, uh, it's unlikely that they hadn't seen each other before that moment. Nonetheless, it is still incredibly moving.
0: Oh, you've ruined the... Sorry. But, but actually, just drawing on, I think, that phrase you used, bittersweet, I think you used it also of Jacob and Rachel too. And I yes. wonder how you draw the analogy between perhaps these two works of performance art? So
1: in order to ex- understand this particular piece of performance art, I think, although I haven't read this elsewhere, but I'm pretty sure this is the case, because they're in this piece of work, she starts sitting half an hour prior to the doors opening at MoMA and also sits half an hour after the doors have closed. It bears great resemblance to Night Sea Crossing, which was a previous work of art that they began doing together in a variety of settings years before, including downtown Manhattan at the New Museum. And what it was, Ule and Marina sitting opposite each other, at, seated at a table for hours on end. And they would just hold each other's gazes in a variety of settings. That was it. And the origin story of that piece of work, Night Sea Crossing, Uh, was their visit to Australia, where in the film, Marina talks about Uluru, which was this great rock that they came across, where they sat opposite it for hours, watching the sun traverse its face, and designed and came up with this work of looking at and looking with each other. And the rock, this rock, she says, um, which I think is very connected to the Ha'even, the great stone. I do think that this is not just a borrowing from one to the other, but this was an enormous stone, which was a leitmotif in their work, right? An obstacle between them. There was something between them that they had to clear, Ulay and and Marina. And in fact, in his interview, Ulay who's now passed away, sadly. He says, for her, it was very difficult to go on alone. For me, it was actually unthinkable to go on alone. If love is broken, it turns to hate. She hated me. And this is Ulay talking about, The moment after their parting ways on the Great Wall of China, so I think that Jacob and Rachel—he certainly—the midrash, the midrash definitely wants him to be powerfully aware of all of the brokenness in their relationship and in the fractiousness that would come from their relationship in the future, including, for example, that great scene where she, in a rant, there's no other word really, there's no other word for it. She rants at him. She says, why can't I have children? Why is it that Leah's having children and everyone's having children and you're not giving me children? And and what does he say? Am I in place of God that I can give you children? There's this, it's Heathcliff and Catherine, really, from Wuthering Heights. It's that moment of just elemental, these beings clashing and it's passionate and it's wretched. And in that moment that he sees Rachel as a a younger version of Rachel, he sees all of these moments as well. And I think that Marina and Ule to a greater or lesser extent, you know, what Marina is communicating in this moment, when she grabs hold of Yule's, hand, or she reaches out rather, and holds Yule's hands, is some kind of drawing a close to the circle of that work together that Jacob actually never has. Jacob never has that, that Rachel dies on him. And actually he says on this, that Rachel, Rachel died on me on the way. He says it literally like that, that he feels bereft, that Rachel abandoned him in some way at the end, that she couldn't be with him. And I think that Yule's phrase about love being broken and turning to hate. I just think one can imagine Rachel and Jacob having that quality of a relationship in turn. Love and hate, those two big modes jostling the foreground of their relationship.
0: Certainly sweet. I wonder we're we're obviously a, a tradition in which primacy is often given to the power of listening. And yet with this episode, and perhaps so much of Jacob's life, the importance of vision, sight, is given primacy. And perhaps this is this episode is a kind of tutorial in the importance of seeing, how to see. And I wonder what you think is really the lesson of the power of seeing.
1: Just going back to that stone again, and the commentary of uh, Bereshit Rabba, and also Rabbi Yehudah ben el in his Minchat Yehudah, uh, which is one of the more obscure of the Midrashim, of the uh, Mepharashim, rather. But in his work, he notes that Vayagel, right, means to reveal, not Vayagel, which means to roll, right? So Vayagel et Ha'evan, could literally mean, and he revealed Et Haeven, the stone. Now, of course, that doesn't make much sense, but why would it not be Vayagal Et Haeven, which would be more grammatically connect, correct? So, right there in that moment of pushing the boulder, again, another quote from I think it's Gloucester I stumbled when I saw, right, that there is this moment when Gloucester's blind and King Lear's blind, and he's being led by his son towards the edge of the precipice and then he wants to end his life, really. And again, it's a very powerful moment where his son pretends that he has fallen from great height, and then he comes down to pick up his father or, at that time, to have a a rapprochement with his father. And this is the phrase I stumbled when I saw. So Jacob doesn't appear to see very often in his life going forward. He seems to have a profound problem with seeing stuff, which is interesting because if you go to last week's parish, this is the person who essentially lies to his father's face, right? His father who is literally blind or is dim of sight and there he is pretending to be Esau. But if you look at Jacob going through his life, he's just not he's just not seeming to get the relationships he stumbles between in, in his relationships with his spouses. He stumbles in his relationship with his sons, with his children. The whole episode of Dina is a complete hot mess from beginning until end. There doesn't seem to be a way, and of course, Laban, think about the way that Laban plays out in his relationship with Laban. Jacob, as Jacob, has a real problem, seemingly has a real problem with seeing in a relationship, with seeing what's really there, and his role as Israel. In his role as Israel, when the word Israel is mentioned, when he does the wrestling with himself and his identity and his demons, he seems to be able to part the curtain, if but a few moments, and have some real revelation. But Jacob is definitely someone who needs to read the room much better, and that is his struggle in life. Maybe it's pro- maybe it's a projection of what he hopes could happen, but whatever. Like for example, Reuben and Joseph. Mistaking where the firstborn is, because of course Yehuda at the end of the day is the one Judah who emerges as the leader. Jacob never mentions Judah as a leader, really. So there are ways in which Jacob is just seemingly blind to what's going on in front of him. That I think is that process is started right here at the. It's both his ability to have prophetic a prophetic um, vantage point, and also his complete inability to see what's in front of his eyes. That is his struggle. The struggle between the eschaton and everyday life. It's the problem of a savant.
0: Rabbi Samuel, thank you so much for sharing your wonderful thoughts and discussing those important parallels that you really grew between that important performance art piece in 2010 and this passage here and We very much look forward to welcoming you back again.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Simon.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, do check out all our exciting content on jewishquest.org. We very much look forward to meeting again next week.